Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. There's some really, really deep, amazing, neat things that we're going to look at. In John chapter 5, and you have your notes in front of you, is there enough notes for everybody here? I think there should be enough for every person that's here. If you need some, there may be an empty seat that has some notes in front of it, if you need to grab another one. Um, And if anybody needs extra notes, aside from the ones that are here, I can print out some more copies. Okay, so up at the top of our sheet, we have seen Jesus' miracles, as well as his discussions with Nicodemus, John chapter 3, and the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, okay, giving the gospel to these two different people. We have seen that he is the Word of God incarnate. Remember, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. God in human flesh the Creator walking among men. We have seen Him show His authority over the Sabbath in purposefully healing and having a man carry his bed on this day. That's the last thing we looked at. The last time we were together, I think it was like two or three weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus healed a man who had been lame or could not walk for 38 years. And Jesus did it specifically on the Sabbath day. And then He told the man, rise. And then He said, in addition to that, take up your bed and walk. And this just threw the Jewish religious leadership in a frenzy. They were beside themselves because not only had Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath day, which he ought not to have done in their eyes, but he told this man to carry his bed, which was an obvious affront to the Sabbath laws. And we found out that Jesus did it on purpose because he's Lord of the Sabbath and that he's greater than the temple and that He gives rest unto our souls. He wanted to show them not necessarily, oh, I'm allowed, to, I'm allowed to do this because there is some loophole in your law, like I've read some books try and paint this picture of, well, Jesus didn't really. Yes, He did. He deliberately had this man carry His bed. He deliberately healed. Not only that, but on previous occasions, we found out that the Jewish people there were accusing Him of, in the Greek, continually, continuing to break the Sabbath, and the word there is destroy. In their eyes, he was ripping the Sabbath apart. Why? Because he's God. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath, as it says in the book of, I think it was Matthew, we looked in the other day. Um, 
Amazing, amazing truth. So Jesus does not respond in a defensive way. Let me tell you how it's possible that I could do this on the Sabbath and it would be okay. He doesn't respond that way. He responds by, my father has worked until now and I work. He responds by telling them who he is. And so what we're going to look at here in the rest of this chapter, and really a lot of the book of John deals with the authority that Jesus has. Because what did the Jewish people have a problem with? What did they have a problem with about Jesus? Well, they had a problem with a lot of things about Jesus, but the kind of the crux of it all, the root of it all, is Jesus' authority. You don't have authority to do this. By what authority do you do these things? Whose authority are you doing this by? You have no authority to do what you're doing or to say what you're saying. Yes, he does. And that's what the book of John focuses on in almost the entire book. But we're going to see it a little bit in focus here in the second half of John chapter 5. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is greater than the temple. He can give rest unto our souls. Here we find Jesus' response to the charges laid against him from the Jewish religious leaders. Okay, so I threw in a couple of verses here from our previous lesson, verses 16 through 18, to kind of just review, bring us back into the context of what's going on. Everything else that we're going to read for the rest of this chapter is Jesus' response to the Jewish religious leadership saying, you know, you, you've broken the Sabbath, and, and, and here, we're going to read it right now. Verse 16 of John chapter 5. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them. This is his first initial answer. My father worketh hitherto, or until now, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, or as we talked about last week, the Greek has the sense of not only had he continually been continuing to break the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And that's the real problem. And I read from that guy's book last week, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus by Rabbi Jacob Neusner. Okay, where he talks about this exact situation or the situation, uh, yeah, the situation just before this where he healed the man on the Sabbath day and he talks about how uh, when Jesus and his disciples were going through the cornfield, and I need to mention this. Okay, is corn a, uh, something that may have existed in Israel back in Jesus' day? A very edumacated, well-read uh, fellow, um, he pointed me out on this, and I thought, wow, you're right. And if you want to know his name, it's spelled backwards and forwards the same way. Um, <laughs> I'll let you figure out who it was. But yeah, so my Bible said corn, okay? And my Bible says corn back in Exodus when it talks about, well, not corn per se specifically, but earring time and harvest. Um, the word in the Greek is grain, ears of grain. It's not necessarily corn. So they weren't shucking corn to um, recant on my previous statement, okay? <laughs> That's a new world crop. It was not existent in, 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 in Jesus' day in, in Israel. And um, the, problem, the problem is with the English, not with the Hebrew or the Greek, okay? Um, as, we, as we state oftentimes in our doctrinal statements here for the ministry and in my own personal doctrinal statement, the Word of God is... is in, in, inerrant, okay, it is perfect in the originals, okay? No translation 
from one language to another can be exact. No translation from one language to another can be um, a, a perfect equivalent of what you have in the original languages. And men are, you know, we're human. God, in his inspired word that he inspired to be written to holy men of God as they spoke, like Moses or Paul and everyone in between, that is the word of God. From the mouth of God, the word is God-breathed. So anyway, God didn't breathe corn. He breathed grain, even though the English translation may sometimes be in error saying corn. Okay? We all on the same page about that? <laughs> all right, so <clears throat> we talked about what the rabbi said. And he said, at issue here, the rabbi that does not believe in Jesus, he said, at issue here is not that, you know, they did this on the Sabbath day or that thing on the Sabbath day, but what is really at issue, and I agree with him, the crux of the whole thing is the authority of Jesus. Jesus was making himself to be, I am greater than the temple. That's because he is. That is the truth. And we're going to see something that goes along with that here in this passage. Okay. <clears throat> Verses 18 through 30. This is a long section to kind of tackle at once, but I want you to see something. I have this really weird-looking color-coded thing here that's kind of like step stools. How many of you can read that, or is it like hard for you to read those different colors? They didn't print out as vividly as they did on my screen, okay? But there is a method to the madness, okay? I just didn't, <clears throat> you know, fall off my rocker and decide to put in some psychedelic colors for no reason. I'm going to show you in a second why, okay? Jesus' authority... <clears throat> Jesus' power and authority seen through a chiasm. Can you guys all say chiasm? Okay, chiasm is a literary structure. And it, what it does, and it, here, I'll just say what's written here. It's said better than if I try and just tell you. One of the many functions of a chiasm is to help the interpreter clearly see where the literary unit begins where the unit is brought to a literary conclusion, and where the unit is brought to a literary conclusion. So, basically it's saying, in so many words, this is bookends, okay? It gives you bookends to this section, the beginning and the ending, clearly. That's one of the things that the chiasm does. I copied this out of a book, so it's not my, it's not my wording. First, I will show a diagram of chiastic structure before attempting to explain it. How, how many of you are lost already? You've, like, checked out. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to try and reel you back in. Just hang on a second, okay? Um, all right. So, the literary unit, when analyzed, has the following structure. The sentence, either word by word or at the very least thought by thought, is repeated at the beginning and at the end. It's just saying, fancy way of saying, the beginning and the end is the same. The beginning and the end says the same thing, Okay. All right. Uh, it is as if the original author moves from A1 to B1. Okay, and this is not like bingo or checkers or, or chess, okay? As if the original author moves from A1 to B1, B1 to C1, C1 to D1, and then suddenly switches gears and moves backwards according to exactly the same order, but backwards in reverse. John chapter 5 verse 19 through 30, is structured as a clear-cut chiasm. Not only are the thought-by-thought -thought parallel repetitive structures present, but my positive identification of it as a true chiasm is verified by clearly repetitive word-by-word -word occurrences as well. Let's take a look. All right, now, I'm going to dumb it all down in a single sentence, okay? 
the orange matches the orange, the pink matches the pink, the red matches the red, the blue matches the blue. Okay, it starts with the orange, then it goes to the pink, then it goes to the red, then to the blue. Then you start the same thing in reverse, the blue, the red, the pink, and the orange. And both of those orange sections say the same thing. They say similar things, they're tied together. Both of the pink sections, they're tied together in words that are mentioned in what is said in those verses. Same thing with the red. And guess what happens with the blue? What color is it that's in the middle of this whole kind of weird pyramid structure? What color is in the center of it? The blue, okay, the blue. And so, what verses are blue? Verse 24 and... All right, so, all of this crazy weird color scheme thing is saying is that the orange verses are saying the same thing, the pink ones are saying the same thing, the red ones are saying the same thing, and the pivotal moment of this entire section of Scripture, what John and God wants us to focus on in this section is verses 24 and 25. And it's kind of like the tip of the pyramid. Okay? One side you're going up to the point, the other side you're coming down from the point. Okay? All right. <clears throat> Let's look at these verses. Verse 19. You can look there. And I have those little, um, you know, the, the, uh, the keys, as, as he said there, the different uh, letter number code to show which part of the chiasm matches with the other part. Because if you look, the orange at the very top, A1. The orange at the very bottom, A2. Okay, you get it? A1 and A2, they kind of go together. Same thing with B1 and B2. C1 and C2 and D1 and D2. So let's start with verse 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, and this is the parts that I have um, in black that are matching from the other verses. The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Now, this is the main part of the scripture that we're going to look at tonight. But on the other page, I have a verse by verse going through this. So this, what we're going to look at here with these colors is kind of a summary of this section, and then we're going to go verse by verse, okay? So don't think I'm going quickly or skipping over anything. I just want to show you this really neat structure. And if I can help any of you to understand it, then I'm a more miraculous teacher than I ever thought I could be because it seems like it's a whole lot more complicated as I'm telling it to you. All right, so what are the black parts there in verse 19? The son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the father do. And then also, do with the Son likewise. Look down, skip down to verse 30, okay? The corresponding verse at the end of this section. Verse 30, the other orange verse. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Okay, you see how those two kind of parallel? In both verses, verse 19 and verse 30, Jesus says, I can of my own self do nothing. The son can do nothing of himself. You see how there's that parallel statement there in verse 19 and verse 30? But what he seeth the Father do. In verse number 30, he says, what I hear, what I hear from the Father, that's what I judge. And then it says, doeth the Son likewise. And then it says, I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father. Those are parallel thoughts. All right, look at the pink ones, okay? Verse 20, we move in in this paragraph form to the next indent. B1, 
Verse number 20. <clears throat> For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, or maketh them alive, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Alright, so, what phrases do we have in the black in verses 20 and 21? We have the phrase, greater works than these, that ye may marvel. Okay, there's going to be something greater that's going to be seen, that men may marvel. And then it says, even so the Son quickeneth, or makes alive, whom he will. Okay? Look at verse number 28. What's the very first word? Marvel. Okay? Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So, those sections of Scripture, 20 and 21, and 28 and 29, what do they have in common? Well, the word marvel is mentioned, okay, that men will marvel when they see these things that Jesus himself, just as the Father does, can raise the dead. And then in verse 28, we hear him say, the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Okay, the subject of resurrection, the subject of resurrection from the dead, it's both in the, both of the pink sections, 20 and 21, and 28 and 29. We're moving closer towards the middle of the pyramid, okay? We're focusing in towards the key point of this passage, according to God and according to John, which is kind of neat because if you just read this, you don't really realize that God had John use a literary structure in order to bring us to the key focal point of this passage, what God wants us to focus on. Moving on to the red passages, okay? Verse number 22. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. So what, is it, what, what are the bold points or the main points that are mentioned in, in verse 22? It talks about the Father, and it talks about the Father hath committed all judgment unto the Son. The Father has given the Son the ability and the authority to be the judge. Look at verse number 26, okay, the other side of this pyramid at equal ground. This is the corresponding passage, verse 26, for as the Father, okay, remember that? Just mentioned in verse 22, also in verse 26, for as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment, also because he is the Son of Man. You see how these points they're, they're parallel. They're parallel on purpose. And then we come to the focal point of this entire section, okay? The verses that are blue. And we can see these things, how they match up. Verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And then the parallel verse to that one is right next to it. Verily, verily, once again. You see how these are parallel? Verily, 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 verily. I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear. Look at verse 24. He that heareth, right? He that heareth, in verse 25, the dead shall hear. The voice of the Son of God. And just like it says in verse 24, hath everlasting life. In verse 25 it says, and they that hear shall live. Now, this, this isn't, you know, some kind of extremely, extremely 
vital, important thing for us to grasp. I just thought it was neat, you know, and I wanted to show you that there's sometimes things to Scripture, elements to Scripture, more than even just the words that are written, but how it's written. Like, for instance, if you go into the book of Lamentations, okay, the first, I believe, three chapters, every single verse, 22 verses in a chapter, starts with letter Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit, and goes like A, B, C, D, E, F, G through to, to, to Z, so to speak, okay? Tav is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the second chapter does the same. Then the third chapter does the same. You wouldn't know that in English, but in the Hebrew, the, the, the sense is Jeremiah is saying, my lamentations over my people are from A to Z. The sins of my people are from A to Z. The goodness and mercy of God is from A to Z. And that's a literary structure that God inspired Jeremiah to write. But you wouldn't know it just in the English if you didn't look for it. There's really neat things like this in there um, as well. Okay. <clears throat> Flip the page over. Are you guys okay with me flipping the page over? Are you happy that that's over with? Or is there something? Any, any, any questions, comments? You know, help me come back from the dead. Or you've lost me and I'm a, I'm, I'm a goner. We're good. We're good. Okay. Me neither. I'm thankful for the book that I had that showed me that. So, okay, absolutely. <clears throat> All right, so the focus of the passage. <coughs> Through his brilliant literary creation, John first states, and then essentially restates in reverse order, the following three ideas. <clears throat> Number one, Jesus is utterly dependent and reliant on his Father who acts only in accordance with his will, A1 and A2. Number two, the Father and the Son in equal measure give life to the dead. Because of the arrival of the Son, the hour of resurrection for the wicked and the righteous draws near. Okay? So it's basically what, what I'm doing in these four, <coughs> these four points is I'm summarizing what these colors mean. Okay, I'm summarizing what these different sections emphasize. The third section emphasizes that the Father has fully commissioned the Son to rule and judge in his place, C1 and C2. At this point, John makes us aware <clears throat> of the chiastic center, thereby showing the emphasis he meant to give to this literary unit. In this text, the emphasis might be summarized as follows, and this is the center. Remember those blue verses that are what he wants us to key in on, what he wants us to focus in on, on verses 19 through 30? <clears throat> Eternal life rests on one's response to the words of Jesus. Eternal life rests upon one's response to the words of Jesus. Believing that he is the Son of God, sent by the Father to bring victory over death, and sin. And by the way, these are the words of Jesus recorded for us. It's not only John in this literary structure, but I believe it's the very words that Jesus spoke in the order that he spoke them. So we can not only say that <clears throat> we believe that, you know, John wanted us to, to hone in on verses 24 and 25. He wanted us to kind of figure out this structure. Not only John, but Jesus himself because these are his words, okay? As in a documentary fashion where words are recorded, 
These are the words of Christ to this religious crowd in John chapter 5 recorded for us. Okay. <clears throat> now we get to the needy-greedy, okay? The verse-by-verse -verse analysis. And the way that I've done this, I hope you don't mind, I've done it kind of out of order on purpose, okay? To match up the verses that match up with each other. Like, for instance, the first, the first subject that's dealt with in verses 19 through 30 Okay, the first subject is the relationship between the Father and the Son. Okay, that's the first topic that's dealt with in this section. And it's spoken of in verse 19, and on the other side of the mirror, verse 30. Okay, so rather going 19, 20, and then going, you know, 21, 22, 23, 24, and going all the way down and kind of repeating again as we come together, I just smack the two verses together that correspond uh, topically. So that's how we're going to look at it, okay? So the first point, the relationship between the Father and the Son in verses 19 and 30. Okay, look at these together. <clears throat> then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. And then again in verse 30, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Do you see, even just reading them this way now, you can see how um, closely related these verses are in what is being said, how it's being said, what's being communicated. And I think it's kind of neat to look at them together that way, because they're opposite sides of this mirror equation that goes further and further down but it's so neat that they're just so exactly parallel to each other. And so looking at this subject, the relationship between the Father and the Son, boy, this is one of the deepest things that we can ever, ever even hope to try and comprehend in this <clears throat> earthly life. Because it's one of the deep things of God, how exactly the Father and the Son, uh, you know, communicate, relate, how that all works uh, on, a, on a deep level. Well, there's a couple of things to help us understand, okay? <clears throat> I have seven things written down here that are things that we know, okay? When we try and figure out something that is kind of, you know, we're trying to get a grasp around this. Jesus saying, I can of my own self do nothing? You know, what does that mean? Which we're going to answer that in a second. But in order to figure out all of the intricacies of the relationship between the Father and the Son, first we need to look at some things that we know for sure. Okay, we know this, we know this, we know this, and that's what we're going to look at in these seven points, okay? Number one, there is one God. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, there is one God. But, number two, he exists as a plurality, okay? A plurality in unity. We don't worship three gods, we worship one. We worship one, the God of Israel. But this one God has a plurality in unity. And that plurality is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We would say the term Trinity, <clears throat> but I think it's been said before, Mark prefers the, the term triunity, okay? To stress the unity of those three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what's kind of hard for us to understand sometimes, or not hard to understand really, I mean, we understand it by faith, 
because it's hard for us to exactly grasp something that is so unique in this entire universe. There's nothing like it. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are not three gods, but they are one God. Okay? And let's try, let's try and figure this out here. So, he exists as a plurality in unity, a triunity. Okay, I have a couple of verses here uh, for us to look at. And let's see. Let's go ahead and turn back to Genesis, okay? Keep your finger or a bookmark in John chapter 5. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And by the way, I, I don't know how far I'm going to get tonight through this. If we finish, we finish. If we don't, we have something to go to next time, okay? <clears throat> Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the whole Bible, in the beginning, God. Does anybody know what the word for God is? Elohim, okay? Elohim is plural, okay? And yet, when God created, how many of you guys know, know a language other than English? Or even just a little bit of a language other than English? Okay, don't worry, I'm not going to put you on the spot and tell you to, you know. Okay. Um, a lot of languages... Um, well, we have, some, we have something kind of like it in English, okay? So, if I was going to say, the man is sitting. The verb is, is for a singular noun. The man is sitting. What happens if I change it from the man to the men? They are. The men are. It becomes a plural version of that same verb, right? So, if I say the men is sitting, that's not really correct. It's not correct either if I say the man are sitting. Both of those are incorrect because you're mixing up the number of singular and plural for the verbs. Okay? We can kind of we can understand that with our ears. It doesn't, it doesn't sound right. A lot of other languages have that for like every single verb. They have a plural form and a singular form. The same thing goes for Hebrew. Elohim is plural, but created, in the beginning, God created, the verb bara is singular. How do you have, you know, I mean, did Moses have bad grammar when he wrote? No. This is what God wanted to be written because it communicates a truth that God is not absolute singular one. He is one in unity, but he has a plurality within him, within his uh, existence, okay? And so when we see in the beginning God, that term should not be translated as gods. It's God, one God. But the term that's used for created is singular, okay? So somebody just looking at this in, in, in Hebrew, maybe somebody that, you know, was an Israeli or something like that, that had no understanding of the God of the Bible, no understanding at all. They would try and say, in the beginning, God's uh, one person created? It, it, it doesn't make sense, but it does when you understand who God is. And the Jewish understanding of God does not include the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Jewish understanding of God, they try and make this into something that it cannot be. 
Okay. Um, anyway, I'm trying to show you that God is one, but he's a plurality in unity. All the way back from the very, 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 very first verse, you can see that God is a plurality in unity. Flip over to verse 26 of the same chapter, Genesis 1.26. And God said, what's the next two words? Let us. Okay. Why would God say, let us? Now, some people try and say, well, he's referring to the angels. Did the angels have any part in creating man? No. Okay, God is speaking within himself to the other parts of the Godhead or the other parts of the Trinity, as it's sometimes mentioned. Okay, let us create man in whose image? Our image. Both of those in Hebrew are plural. It's not just something that's been written in English this way, but the word for let us and our image are both plural. How do, you, how, how do you get that? How does that work? It's the Trinity, okay? The triunity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They all had parts in creation. In fact, at the very first part, we read um, that the Spirit of God hovered upon the face of the deep, or something along those lines. Uh, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, okay? And according to what we read in the New Testament, it shows us that by the Son, all things were created. Okay? Uh, just amazing, amazing truths. All the way back to the very first book of the Bible about God being a plurality and unity. For time's sake, I'm not going to go there. <clears throat> I'll just mention it kind of in passing. You guys remember Sodom and Gomorrah? <clears throat> the place that God rained down fire and brimstone? Okay, when that happened, there was God on the earth. He appeared to Abraham in the door of his tent in the heat of the day and he ended up eating a meal which by the way was not a kosher meal by rabbinical standards. They had a, a calf and they had butter and, and milk and that's not that's not kosher today. But there was two angels and there was God in the form of a man. And then what happened to the angels? How many angels went down to Sodom and Gomorrah to try and tell Lot, hey, get out of here. We're going to destroy this. God is going to destroy the city. Two. What happened to the other one? Well, it said the Lord stayed yet before Abraham. And then God says, I will see, go down now and see for myself, you know, what this, what's going on in this, in this city. And it says, <clears throat> in Genesis chapters 18 and 19, it says, Jehovah on the earth rained down fire and brimstone from... Jehovah in heaven. You've heard that from Mark before, maybe. But it shows. How can there be two Jehovahs? Well, the Son is Jehovah, and so is the Father. And so is the Holy Spirit. They are all part of that one God. Okay? <coughs> Sorry, I got a frog in my throat, I guess. <coughs> I don't know, they say acid reflux does that to you. Maybe that's part of my problem. <clears throat> okay. Now, turn back to the book of John. <clears throat> and while you're turning back to the book of John, I'm going to read you a verse. Okay, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. From Isaiah chapter 48 in verse 16. And if you were here when Mark was going through the book of Isaiah, you'd remember this verse. 
Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16. Come ye near unto me, hear ye this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I. And now, and by the way, this is God talking, okay, from the time of the beginning, okay, time that there it was, there am I. And now the Lord God, capital L-O-R-D, um, actually capital G-O-D, but there the word is uh, Jehovah Elohim, okay, the Lord God and His Spirit hath sent me. You have all three people right there. And it doesn't make any sense because it's God talking. How can God send God? Well, He did. <laughs> um, okay, so anyway. Um, John 17. And keep your finger there in John chapter 5. But I want you to see this in John 17. The next point that we know uh, for sure Okay, and just to recap, number one, there is one God. Number two, he exists in a plurality in unity, or a trinity, a triunity, okay? Number three, this is what we're going to look at now in verse 17, the Son has always existed with the Father, John 17, and verse 5. And this is in Jesus' prayer, <clears throat> John 17 in verse 5, Jesus says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Okay? Jesus is not created. He is God. And so is the Father. And so is the Holy Spirit. It's hard for us to grasp that and to understand it completely and fully. And maybe we never will have a, a, a full and complete grasp of it until we get to heaven. We can understand it completely, but this is part of the mystery of who God is, okay? And as much as our human finite minds can try to understand it as completely as we can, uh, we have the scripture to try and show us that. <clears throat> but these are some things that we understand. In Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm just going to read some of these points here. I'm not going to go into all these verses. We know that Jesus is the express image of the Father. The express image of the Father. Oh, I should have looked this up. I'm thinking, and I might, I might be dead wrong here. I don't want to say something that's incorrect. Um, I don't know. Maybe I should look it up. Maybe I will. I'm going to look this up real quick right here. So the express image of the Father, I think, and I might be wrong, but I think that the Greek word that's used is like the word where we get Xerox from, meaning you have, a, a copy is a bad rendition, but yes, that's where we get the idea of copy from, but what is a copy? Well, it's the express image of that thing. Um, and I might, be, I might be completely wrong here. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, all right, here we go. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. I want, I want to give you guys a definitive answer, yes or no, uh, what this is. Oh, no, it's not the word for copy. It's the word for icon. Um, actually, uh, okay, it can be used for icon, 
But the word is actually the word where we get the word character. Okay? The word in the Greek is basically the word character. Okay? <clears throat> we can see some things in the scripture having to do with how man was created in the image of God. Okay? And Seth was in the image of his father, Adam. Okay? But we also know that when Jesus talked to Philip, Philip said, show us the father. What did Jesus say? He said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And these are things that are kind of hard for us to completely understand. But the Son has always existed with the Father. He is the express image of the Father. And this leads us to our next point. The Word, who is God, He was with God and He, was God, and he is God. The Word, who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, so according to Hebrews chapter 1, that Jesus is the express image of the Father, and Jesus telling Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, okay, Jesus reveals to us the Father, okay? And what is, what is one of the main differences, although there's other differences that are harder to discern, what is the main difference between the Father and the Son? Well, the Son is the same as the Father, but with human flesh, okay? When Jehovah took on human flesh, he took on human flesh in the form of the Son. The Son is the one that would die on the cross. The Son is the one that would be born in a manger. The Son is the one that would resurrect from the dead three days later. The Son is the one that is returning to set up his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. The Son is Jehovah in human flesh. And these are things when we try and, I don't say split hairs, so to speak, but when we try and understand some of these things, it'll help us when we get to this question that I have next. Also, look at this. And I don't know if by going through these, I am bringing more confusion <laughs> or more of a clarity Sometimes when you get into these things, you start thinking about them and, you know, your mind just goes, I can't, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> because in John chapter 10, Jesus told the Pharisees, he said, or in John chapter, yes, John chapter 10, I and my Father are one. So you see how there's this inseparable connection between the Father and the Son. They are one. We don't worship three gods, we worship one. And yet within the Elohim, there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son always existed. He was never created. And He existed with the Father, according to John chapter 17, before the world ever was. And we know that by Him and through Him all things exist. Jesus is the Creator. Also, when we look at um, Colossians chapter 2, we read that in Jesus, dwelt all the fullness, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of it. Okay? So everything, everything, everything that God is dwelt in Jesus bodily. And we read in Philippians that Jesus humbled himself and took upon him the form of a man. In fact, let's turn there. Philippians chapter 1. When we're reading about uh, the Son taking on human flesh. 
we kind of really can't do it without looking at this passage. Okay. Actually, it's chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. It says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And, became, and, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So you remember the transfiguration of Jesus? I believe it's is it Matthew 18, I'm thinking. Anyway, Jesus was transfigured before, was it Peter, James, and John? And Moses and Elijah were there, okay? And what happened? How did Jesus change in the way that he looked? Well, he shone brightly, brilliantly, almost parallel to what we see in Revelation chapter 1, to where Jesus appears to John, and we see that, you know, there's this, this fiery, flaming, you know, look, and just, um, I think it says that he was like brass, parts of him were like brass, his hair was like wool, and just this vibrant, just blinding light of who Jesus is in his glory. Did Jesus look like that when he was walking on the earth for 33 and a half years and while he's talking to these guys now in John chapter 5? Did he appear in that way? Okay. He set that aside. He voluntarily set that aside. And not only became a man through physical birth, okay, except his birth was different than anybody else that had ever been born or ever will be born because his father was God. Okay. So he's 100% man. And you've heard it before, he's also 100% God. Now, is that 200%? <laughs> That's hard for us to understand because it's, it, 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 it flies against the, the, the normal course of things because we're dealing with God. We're dealing with the Creator, the, the reason that we're all here. Okay? If you're breathing breath right now, it is because God ordains it. Okay? He is giving breath to your lungs. He is holding the molecules of your forehead together. <laughs> Okay, he is enabling electrons to go from your brain to your lungs and back and forth and to, for your heart to pump blood and for you to see and to hear me and to kind of calculate in your mind what in the world is Brother Dan saying, you know? He's enabling you to do all of those things. Uh, it's, 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 it's incredible. It's incredible to look into this. And I can't do it justice and... <laughs> Just thinking about how great the Lord is, okay? Um, I want to move on because as we move on, we will be getting further into this and how it applies in Jesus' ministry and in our lives as well. Before I jump to the next, uh, you know, platform here, is there any question, comments, discussion about any of this? I don't want to be like one of those auctioneers that, uh, or, you know, in a business meeting, you ever been in a business meeting where they say, you know, uh, all, all, all for, say, say aye, all opposed, same sign, okay, the motion's carried, you know, and they just kind of like cut it off before it even gets a chance. I don't want to do that with you guys with questions or discussion. Okay. Now, I asked myself a question. I asked myself a question. I try and answer it here, okay? Verse number 19 Jesus says the Son can do nothing of himself. 
the son can do nothing of himself. Well, when I ask this question, letter A, why can the son do nothing of himself? Let's look at this. And this helps us to understand what is being communicated here. The son is not a separate deity. And it's, it, it, this is hard for us. Uh, is it hard for you guys? It's hard for me. Okay. When I think of God, okay, and then I think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I think of the Son being separate from the Father, I want to say that the Son is a separate I mean, I don't want to say that, but that's the way my mind starts to think. That the Son is separate from the Father, so the Son is a... But it's not. He is not. I and my Father are one. And so we cannot fully comprehend how one the Son and the Father are. Jesus the Son, or I don't want to say Jesus, I'll say the Son is not a separate deity from the Father. They are the same, okay? They are both, they are not just both God. Here's God over here, here's God over here, here's God over here. But they are God, okay? Inseparably, they are uh, wound together. They are one in a way that we can't fully do justice or comprehend with our physical minds. The Son is not a separate deity. Jesus the man, in human flesh, and that's what I mean by the phrase Jesus the man, okay? In human flesh, okay, that you could touch, that could be pierced on a cross, okay? That his side could be pierced, that he could have a crown of thorns upon his head, that he could be whipped physically, that's what I mean when I speak of Jesus the man, okay? The human flesh, his body, does nothing apart from the Father. That's what he is saying. When he says the Son can do nothing of himself, I believe, this is how I took it, he's saying the Son is not a separate deity, okay? You don't have the Father over here doing his thing and the Son over here doing his thing. And then secondly, Jesus, here on the earth for 33 and a half years, does nothing, nothing, nothing apart from the Father. Okay? He works in and through and with, and, 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 and they are one. Okay? That's why he says the Son can do nothing of himself. He, he, he's saying, I'm not going to go rogue and do my own thing apart from the Father. That's the gist. Okay? I of my own self can do nothing because I am part with, I, I, I and the Father are one. Okay, I just keep going back to that. Okay, that's the statement. Also, in John chapter 8, verse 29, he does always, always the things that please the Father. How can somebody, how can, I'll put it this way, how can the Messiah do always the things that please the Father and yet do his own thing at the same time. That's what he's saying. I'm not going to do my own thing. I'm not doing anything, not one single little bit, apart from the Father. I operate only through the Father's will. And always, 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 every millisecond, I always do the things that please him. Because I and my Father are one. Now, I don't know if while we're going through any of this, anything is going to click and we're going to have like an aha moment that, oh, okay. Or if it's just going to be like, eh, I'm still trying to, you know, 50 years later, I'm still trying, <laughs> still trying to comprehend 
the relationship between the Father and the Son. It's an amazing thing. All right, now, where it says in verse 19, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. What he sees the Father do. The Greek word there for sees or seeth, okay, that Greek word also has the idea of understand or understands. So what does Jesus do? Well, he does the things that the Father does because he is basically the Father in human flesh. That's why he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I do always the things that please him. I don't do anything apart from the Father. Um, just as our, and this is my silly, stupid illustration here, just as our body doesn't operate separately from our brain, okay, if you had somebody that had a, uh, oh, what's it called, lobotomy, I don't know if you can have like a brain, a brainectomy or something, okay? Your, your brain gets completely taken out. You don't have any brain anymore. How, how can you expect just a body to be walking around, you know? That is how inseparably connected and one the Father and the Son are, okay? Is, 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 is my brain, I don't want any, any jokes here, okay? Is my, is, is, is my brain Dan Bergman? Yeah, yeah. Is my is, is 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 my body Dan Bergman? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this this is this illustration falls short. Any illustration that we can possibly think of to try and illustrate the connection between the father and the son is going to fall short. But we can try. Okay. Um, just as our brain doesn't operate separately from our body, okay, they're not independent of each other. Jesus does not operate outside of the Father's will. This is why he says, I can of my own self do nothing. Okay? Jesus is saying, you're never going to ever, ever, ever see me doing something that's not of the Father. Ever. Because I and my Father are one. This is hard for us to grasp, but God is three in one. And here's some examples, some things that are... Um, a trichotomy, is that, is that what it's called? Um, a, okay, I am a father. I am a brother. I'm also a son. I'm all three of those things at the same time. And so when I, as a father, um, go 100 miles an hour down 55 and crash and total my car, do I also do that as a brother and a son? <laughs> it's, you can't separate it. Okay? And so Jesus is saying, what the Father does, the Son does. You know? We're one and the same. Uh, we have a body, soul, and spirit. Okay? That's scriptural. That identification. We have a body, soul, and spirit. Um, do any of those things operate, you know, separately from each other here on this earth while we are in this physical life? No. Um, I think of like H2O, okay? I didn't want to use the word water because water is, when you say water, you think of liquid, okay? Um, H2O can be in a solid, we know it is ice, or a liquid, we know that is water, or a gas, like steam, okay? Are all three of those H2O? Yes, okay? So if I have... 
say, say that I, um, I froze this, this bottle, okay? It's still the same water, but it's solid ice. If I take that and throw it up in the air and Bob shoots a hole through it, okay, while it's in the air, does, it, does the water have a hole through it? Well, until it melts, you know. I mean, that's a poor illustration, but yes, okay? Whatever happens to this H2O is going to happen to it in, in, in whatever state it's in. You know what I mean? Um, so, Jesus and the Father are one, okay? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, they're synonymous. They're used in the same way in the New Testament to speak of what indwells us um, as believers. Okay. So, we've seen the relationship between the Father and the Son as best I can. Any questions, comments about these two verses, verses 19 and verse 30? Okay. All right, so let's read them again just to kind of cap that all back together in our mind here. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. I do what my Father does. I do it. I do the same thing. Because I am the Father manifest in human flesh. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Okay? Okay. Let's move on to the second part of our chiasm here. Okay? The power of the Son. The power of the Son. Not S-U-N, but S-O-N. Verses 20 and 21, and then also verses 28 and 29. The Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves, all that are in the graves. This is not a reference to those that came out of their graves after his resurrection. This is a reference to the final resurrection, or what's called in Revelation the first resurrection, and also the second death, depending on which side you're on. Those that are saved are going to have a resurrection unto eternal life. Those that are lost, the wicked, they're going to have a resurrection unto the lake of fire, which is called the second death. And we'll mention that in a second specifically. The hour is coming in which all, all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Okay? Now, let's look at this specifically. The power of the sun. Your other page there. Your second page. And I think I'm going to probably cap it off with the... Uh, I'm going to end with the end of this section. I'm not going to go into verses 31 through 47. We'll save that till next time. Because I think, depending on how my time goes here. Okay, the Son has power to give life to the dead. Just as the Father does. And by the way, by the way, this is one of the few times in Scripture that we see this. The Father loves the Son. Did you know that? I mean, we think so often, Jesus loves me. God loves the world. You know the Father loves the Son. 
And this is one of the few instances that we have this written for us. The Father loves the Son. Turn over to Genesis 22. Keep your finger there in John 5, okay? We were having a Sunday school lesson at my church a couple of weeks ago. And the teacher was going into Genesis 22. And I've taught on Genesis 22, and I've heard it taught many times. But it just dawned on me. One of the ways that we can view what's being said in, in, in verse 22. Now this is, just, this is just a possibility. I'm not saying that this is exactly what the deal is here in Genesis 22. But I'm saying that it's an interesting, an interesting thought. Okay, Genesis 22. It came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, now listen to this verse. Okay, this is, this is a picture of what the Messiah would do. Think about this in God's perspective. He is about to ask Abraham to do the very thing that he will do for us. Okay? And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. For some reason, when my teacher was going through this passage and reading that, I kind of thought of Job. In the end of the book of Job, God is talking to Job. And he's saying, you know, canst thou bind Leviathan? Can you take, can you take Leviathan out of the water with a hook? You know, can you do this? Can you, you know, were you there when this was created? When you, were you there when the, when the angels sang for glory, for, for, for my glory, when, when, when I created the world? Were you there with this, this, and this, and this? And then God tells Job, he says, go and do this. Go and, go, go and do this. And it's in uh, chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 41. Specifically, God kind of switches gears from asking Job questions to a couple of verses where he's telling him, go and do this. And it's kind of like almost rhetorical. I don't know if you can make a rhetorical, like a statement, like, I know you can't do this, you know. Like, go create the stars, Job, you know. Um, go, go, go hold everything together. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like along those lines, okay. Think about that when God appears to Abraham and he says, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, the son of promise, okay, who had a miraculous birth because his parents were really, really old, okay, whom thou lovest, and take him to the exact place where I'm going to have my son sacrificed as an offering for all mankind. Take him there and do this. I mean, it, it, it just brought on kind of like a, a parallel meaning because we know that this picture is Jesus. And just a little bit later, God says, God will provide himself a lamb. And if you've heard Mark talk about this before, you realize that what was caught in that thicket, okay, to spare Isaac, to be sacrificed in his stead, was not a lamb, but it was a ram. And then the even more telling part, okay, is that Abraham says, Abraham says, what did he call the place? Yehovah your eh, God will provide, future. He didn't say God has provided. He says God will provide. After this was all said and done, you know, I'm going to call this place God will provide. In the mountain of the Lord, it shall.
future tense, be seen. And so when I read in John chapter 5, just that little statement, the Father loves the Son. Can you think about what he had going through his mind as he was telling this to Abraham to do this? What he knew he would go through as a father, the father, okay, and the son. Um, we oftentimes don't think of it that way. But I wanted us to understand where he says the father loves the son. Okay, it wasn't just, oh, I love the world so much, I'm just going to sacrifice my son. You know, it wasn't like that. And sometimes we get the idea that that's kind of a, um, that it wasn't a difficult decision because we're just so awesome. You know, I mean, I'm not saying there was any decision making involved, but there was a sacrifice. Okay, it wasn't just, okay, I'll go ahead and have my son do this. The father loves the son. Okay. Um, and he died for the sins that you and I did today, you know, and will do tomorrow and for the rest of our life, you know. Um, I heard a preacher once say that if you, uh, you know, have a day where you kind of, you wake up and you determine that you're, that you're not going to sin and you're going to try as hard as you can to be the best Christian that you can possibly be and uh, before you know it, you have to confess something, you know, and then your feet hit the floor, <laughs> you know, to get out of bed. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like that. Um, and if we say that we have no sin, the truth is not in us, you know, and we lie and do not the truth. Um, and if I, and, and if, if I tell you that I, you know, I don't sin, well, that was one right there. Um, okay, moving along. John chapter 5. Okay, I'm still going through this, uh, describing the, the, the power that the son has. So there are three people, if you don't include Adam, that are recorded for us in Scripture that were brought back to life by the Father in the Old Testament. A widow's son in 1 Kings 17, the son of a Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4, and by the way, this correspondingly is Elijah and Elisha for those two people that were brought back from the dead. And we also have an unnamed man in 2 Kings 13. Okay, those are the three that are recorded for us in the Old Testament that God brought back from the dead, the Father specifically. Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, and Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm going to read that for you real quick. You don't have to turn there. I got it right here. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And there's also a passage in Galatians 1.1 that says that Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father. Um, Jesus raised, in the New Testament that we have recorded for us, the widow's son from Nain, Luke chapter 7, Jairus, or Yair, you guys ever hear of a person named Yair? Yair is his Hebrew name. We say Jairus or Jairus, not even close, okay? Um, Yair is the Hebrew name. Yair's daughter in Mark chapter 5, and Lazarus in John 11. So when we look here, it says in, uh, 
in John chapter 5 and verse number, uh, let's see here, verse number 21, for as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. We have that in Scripture. Um, okay. Verses 28 and 29 are speaking of the final resurrection. Okay. This happens after the millennium. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 5. All right, so let's do this. I would like us to have one finger <clears throat> in, well, keep your place in John 5. Turn over to Revelation 20. Revelation 20. While you are turning to Revelation 20, I'm going to read some verses from Daniel. And remember, verses 28 and 29, where he says, The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Okay, now listen up. While you're in the book of Revelation, I'm going to read Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, the Lamb's book of life, clarified for us in the book of Revelation, what book is specifically being talked about. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay? Resurrection unto life, resurrection unto death. Revelation chapter uh, 20. <clears throat> and let's look at a couple different verses here. Verse number 5. Revelation chapter 20. And verse number 5. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. Okay, so there's a resurrection unto life, and there's a resurrection unto death. Now, are those people, what did Paul say? When, what happens when you're absent from the body as a believer? Present with the Lord, okay? Why are the bodies coming out of the grave? Okay? Because those bodies will then be glorified. There will be a resurrection. Okay? And the same thing goes for the people that are not going to be in heaven. The people that are going to be cast into the lake of fire, they are going to have physical bodies. Those bodies are going to be supernatural. They're not going to die. And yet they are going to have an everlasting judgment. That's how you can be in fire forever and not be burned up and not die. Okay? There's two resurrections. One of them is good, very good, and the other is very bad. Okay? Verses um, 11 through 15 of Revelation 20. Look at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whom, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no more place for them. Okay? This is the judgment for all those that are lost, all those that are not saved, all those that are not found in the Lamb's book of life. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is what's spoken of in Daniel chapter 12 and in John chapter 5 about two resurrections, one unto everlasting life and one unto everlasting death. Okay? All right. Moving on. The authority of the Son. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verses 22 and 23. Then the corresponding verses, we're almost to the top of that pyramid, we're almost to the focal point of the whole, the whole section. The corresponding passage to this is, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Both of those passages, all of the judgment that is going to be handed out and meted out is given into the hand of the Son from the Father. The Son has all the authority. The Father has given the Son all the authority to be our judge. Okay? This passage correlates strongly to Daniel chapter 7 as well as to Psalm 2. Daniel chapter 7, it talks about, and I'll paraphrase it here for you, it talks about the Ancient of Days sitting on a throne. Daniel sees this vision, the Ancient of Days, okay, who is God, God the Father specifically. And he sees one like unto the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And the Ancient of Days gave unto the Son of Man power and a kingdom and judgment, and glory. And Daniel says, the visions of my head troubled me. Daniel knew there was one God, and yet what was he seeing? He was seeing the Father and the Son, yes. Okay? And we know that is not two gods, but one. But Daniel, he was kind of bewildered because there was obviously deity, you know? Anyway, it also corresponds to Psalm 2, where God says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. God says, all the judgment, all of the wrath, all of that is going to be poured out and meted out by the Son. Trust in him, and you'll be blessed. If you don't, you will perish. All judgment has been given into the hand of the Son. Oh, okay, I have it here. <laughs> The passage that I paraphrased so eloquently. <laughs> Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. You have it right here in front of you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. By the way, this exact passage is quoted by Jesus. They ask him at his judgment, okay, when he's being judged by Pilate and the, and, and the high priests and all those people. Somebody says to him, Art thou the Messiah? Tell us plainly, or pl plainly, yes or no. Are you the Christ? 
and he says, Verily, and you shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And he's quoting this verse. And what happens? I think one of them, you know, smites him. You know, smacks him. Blasphemy! Because they knew what he was saying. Jesus quoted this passage. It came off his lips referring to himself just before he would die for our sins. I saw in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which should not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. Oh, that's going to be a wonderful thing to be able to see the Lord and be able to talk to Daniel and be like, are you, are you okay now? You know, that, you, that you've seen him for who he is? Okay. All right, so, um, and then we come to the focal point. The focal point of the whole thing. This is the last section of Scripture we're going to look at, okay? The crux of this whole passage, verses 24 and 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Okay. So here we have an amazing, amazing passage of Scripture. Remember how last week Mark was talking about that uh, eternal security, that we can't lose our salvation, that it's not talking about those that keep it unto the end are going to then by those actions of keeping it unto the end be saved in the book of Hebrews, but he talks about how those that hold on, those that show themselves to be true unto the end, well, those are the ones that are really saved in the first place. Okay? You can never lose your salvation. No man can pluck you out of the Father's hand, including yourself. Otherwise, you'd be more powerful than God. Okay? We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He's not going to unseal you and take the Holy Spirit out. That does not happen. That is not going to happen. We are not kept by our good works. We are kept by his power, it says in 1 Peter, I think. But this verse right here is one of my favorites regarding the fact that you can never, ever, ever lose your salvation. You are saved past, present, and future. If you could lose your salvation, there'd be no way to be saved future. <laughs> you can't be saved future if you can lose your salvation because that'd be a guarantee that you're never going to lose it. But wait a second, there is a guarantee that you are never going to lose it. It says, He that heareth my word believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So, past. The, our, 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 our past salvation, we are past. And that has an ED on the end of it, okay? It's a done deal. We are past from death unto life. We are in the realm of life now. We have passed. Done deal, past tense. We have passed from death unto life. In the present, he that believeth on him that sent me, okay, heareth my word, believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life now. Okay? You're passed from death unto life. That's a done deal, past tense, it's done. Currently, you have everlasting life. In the future, there is a promise that you shall not come into condemnation. If you could lose your salvation, if you could ask Jesus to be your Savior and become born again and then somehow mess up or willingly walk away, as some have said, and lose your salvation, 
This promise is a lie from the lips of Jesus because then you would come into condemnation. You would end up going to hell paying for your own sins because you walked away from your salvation or you lost it because you did something too horrible. You cannot, not, not ever, ever, ever lose your salvation. Anybody that teaches that is teaching a false gospel. Anybody that teaches that is calling Jesus a liar right here in this verse. He that believeth on me hath right now everlasting life is passed already from death unto life. You are in the realm of life now. And you shall not see condemnation. Yes? Yes, sir. Uh, now, uh, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, but uh, let's say blasphemy. That is the only sin in the Bible that cannot be forgiven. And let's say you are saved, but then a few years from now, you do blaspheme. What happens then? Do you lose your salvation? When it talks about that passage, okay, there's a specific context to it. The Jewish people that were angry with what Jesus was teaching, they disagreed with him, and they were blaspheming against what he was saying, and they said, the works that you are doing right now, Jesus, in the flesh, here on this earth, 2,000 years ago, what you are doing, you are doing by the power of Beelzebub. You are doing it by the power of the devil. And so that's when that context is, 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 is brought up, that this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, attributing the works of Jesus in his earthly ministry to Satan, saying that Jesus, in what he is doing, is empowered by Satan. It is not possible for Christians to commit that sin because it was a contextual sin. It was a sin for that exact specific period of time where Jesus was walking among us in his earthly body, doing his ministry, doing his miracles, and those that were saying, what you are doing right now is of Satan. Okay? I believe based on the rest of Scripture and what's taught throughout the rest of Scripture that that is, um, it was a thing that was temporary for that time period and cannot possibly be committed by a believer today. Okay? Um, if you want to talk about that more um, afterwards or, or another time, I'd be glad to talk about that with you. Absolutely. Thank you, brother. That's a good question. Um, but yes, so there is nothing that can cause us to lose our salvation um, because it's all up to God. It's not up to us. It's in his power. Um, and that specific mention of the uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is something that we cannot possibly commit today. Um, I believe it was in the context of Jesus' earthly ministry while it was happening. Okay, so... Um, before we are born again, we are dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1 and Colossians 2.13. That's how he can say we are passed from death unto life. That's how he can say that um, the hour is coming and now is, they which is hear his voice, the dead shall hear his voice and live. So this passage, yes, is talking about people like Lazarus, you know, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and the dead body miraculously regained life and came out of that tomb but also those of us who are spiritually dead. We hear his voice. We believe on him that sent, us, that sent him. And we are passed from death unto life. We are made spiritually alive. That's why it's called born again. Okay? Um, the dead spoken of in this passage is not only referring to the physically dead in the first resurrection that we read about there in the book of Revelation, 
and Daniel, but also the spiritually dead, the lost individual who becomes spiritually alive when he is born again. We trust Jesus as our Savior. The Bible says we are passed from death unto life, that he hath quickened us. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1, it says that he has um, brought us alive from the dead by the same power that raised up Jesus from the tomb. And that is the power that we have in the Christian life. If we would trust him and yield to the Spirit's leading, we can overcome because he has overcome. Okay? Questions, comments, discussion? Okay. Well, what we'll do next time, and I'm not sure when that's going to be, um, I think there's going to be a week in May that Mark is going to be in Buffalo, although that depends if he leaves on Saturday and he'll stay here and do Bible study anyway. So until we meet again, okay, in this, in, in, in this way, um, we'll pick it up right here. I believe it's verse 31 that we're going to start with and go through verse 47. And there's some really neat things to look at in there as well. I think it was a good study. We tried to wrap our head around some things. Maybe we can, you know, be so mentally tired that we'll actually have an easy time falling asleep <laughs> tonight because we, we ran our brain through the ringer trying to comprehend the relationship that the Father has with the Son as best we can. But praise the Lord for that. And think about all that Jesus did for us as God in human flesh. He wept over Jerusalem. He prayed for those that would believe on him after in John 17. That's you and me. Okay? He died for us. He rose again. And with that same power, he can raise us up. Not only from spiritual death to spiritual life, but this, this body, okay, these eyes, this scalp, okay, it's going to get a new body. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be glorified someday because we know that Jesus did. Um, and when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll be done, and I'll, I'll pray for the refreshments as well. Thank you, Lord. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.